Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Welcome, everyone. We're going to have another wonderful show today. We have with us Dr. Jim Garvin, and he's the CAO of Cytobioscience. We're going to be talking about biology relative to our bodies and particularly how we can get better patient outcomes in the medical care arena. He's going to be discussing technology, specifically ion channels. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know what those are myself. (laughs) So we're going to dumb it down for all of us. So let me bring Dr. Jim Garvin onto our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much, Denise. It's it's not quite as uh, as complex as it seems. So if you can allow me one brief introduction, I I I think that will help. Um, you know, we're an integrated um, biotechnology and, and biosciences group, and and. Um, our ultimate responsibility, is, as you were talking about, is to create better patient outcomes. And creating those outcomes is a long line of people and companies and technologies. We, we are in that line. And uh, we provide and develop research instrumentation that gives researchers and drug developers valuable information that leads to better medicine and better treatment. And we, the core of that are these things called ion channels. And so I want you to think of a bubble, and inside that bubble, you're going to see thousands of little tiny tubes, and that bubble really is a human cell, and those, those tubes, if you will, are what they call ion channels, and they're tubes in which very small molecules, we call them ions because they have a positive or a negative charge, pass through those tubes, and they're delivering information they're delivering compounds, they're doing all kinds of things. But as they pass through those tubes, what happens is they give off a small electrical discharge. And by reading what's happening in those tubes from those discharges, it's like a little broadcast signal. By reading those broadcasts, we can tell you not only what's going on in the cell, but why it's going on. And this is critically important when you're trying to develop a a therapy Um, or a therapeutic compound, because you want to know, first of all, is it going to harm the cell? And secondly, is it going to do the job to which it was designed to do? And so we're able, through our instrumentation, to put a little tiny probe into that single cell and to pick up those broadcast signals and then deliver that information out to a, a, uh, a drug developer or a 
pharmaceutical company, et cetera, et cetera. So ion channels are really, if you will, very, very tiny biomarkers. And by reading those biomarkers, you get a lot of information. Does that help? Yes, it definitely helped. It doesn't have anything to do with nanotechnology. Uh, yes, it does, because the technology that we use to develop our instrumentation to be able to read those signals is really nanotechnology. You have to remember that. Let's take the size of a tiny human cell, one cell. And so you have to be able to, if you, if, if I could describe it, if you could take pencil dots, put mm-hmm. them across a piece of paper touching each other, and then mm-hmm. four pencil dots underneath touching each other, and you do that so you got a four-by-four four square, all little tiny pencil dots. The core of our technology is in a microchip, which is that size. And it's not much thicker than that. Oh. And so what happens is, is inside that little chip, we capture this cell, and we hold it in place, and then significantly smaller than the cell is the probe that we have to insert into that cell in order to read that data. So you're talking about nano, nano, nano technology. Oh, my gosh. What does this instrument look like? Um, it looks, <laughs> it's a square. It's, uh, it's 28 inches by 28 inches by 28 inches. And most of it is air on the interior because it's mm-hmm. robotic. And, and so what happens is, is there's a very small confined area where, which we call the process module, where this chip is actually placed by the robots, the robotic uh, apparatus. And then gotcha. all this activity that's in there is that you've got to have room for these little robotic apparatus to move around and then to be able to pump all these things in and pump all these things out. And what's important to remember is that your body operates at one atmosphere of pressure. That's what Earth is. When you walk around the planet, that's one atmosphere mm-hmm. of pressure. So we have to take this little tiny cell, we have to put it through little tiny nanotubes, and we have to push it down so it gets into this microchip. You cannot put more pressure on it than one atmosphere. So there's a lot of valves and tubes and robotic reading and artificial intelligence stuff going on in order for that to float down there and get to where we want it and capture it the way that we want to capture it. How many years did it take you to develop this? Oh, well, um, Professor Nair in Germany won the Nobel Prize for discovering uh, the positive-negative elements of, of, uh, of ion channels, and that was back in the late 90s. Dr. Knott, who, who is a key person developing this technology, probably has spent, I'm counting, I would see probably the last 12 years. Uh, the company's only been in existence for seven, but, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of research uh, that was going on and an awful lot of failures in terms of trying to build this and develop it, yeah. I bet. But you learn from those mistakes. You know, one of the great things mm-hmm. in life is that people get all concerned about, well, I failed this. Yeah, but what did you learn from the failure? And in science, exactly. failure is part of our life, and we learn from that constantly. We don't get upset when we fail. We dig mm-hmm. into that information even deeper. Mm-hmm. You'd have to. Yep. In the line of business that you're in. 
you're you're going to have failures probably on a daily basis until you get it right. <laughs> well, you you I'll give you an example. For us to look at one cell and and get it right, we will look at probably forty thousand cells mm-hmm. in microseconds. By the way, you're re- looking, rejecting, looking, rejecting, looking, rejecting, and then you find the right one. Oh. So who's your customer? Our customers are everybody. Uh, one of our biggest customers is the FDA. Um, almost all of the large pharmaceutical companies uses, mid-sized pharmaceutical companies uses, um, NYU, um, uh, several universities in Spain and Europe, um, universities here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a pretty diverse customer base. There's both a commercial customer base, which are the pharmaceutical companies and the drug developers, and there's an academic customer base, which are the universities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you go out and train them on how to apply this technology? Yeah, yeah one of the, the our sales cycle is kind of interesting because the reality is is, is that it's it's there there is another technology out there. This is called hands-free, if you will, patch clamping now. Patch and clamping have nothing really to do with anything, but that was the name given to it years ago, and it sort of stuck. Um, mm-hmm. But the old way was a scientist would have a big microscope, and he would be looking at a single cell on a slide, and about two, he had a, two different instruments, about two feet long, one in his left hand and one in his right hand, and he would squeeze the cell out into the thing, and then he would try to hold the cell in place while he inserted the probe, and that probe then was wired into a lot of electronics. And a really good guy might be able to do four to six cells a, a day. Okay. Um, we actually are able to do 60 cells in eight hours. So it's a, it's a, it's a big difference. Um, and so in order for people to get used to that, mm-hmm. the best way for us is for them to bring whatever project they're working on, whether it's a particular compound or it's a particular cell line, and to bring that into our lab, and we actually allow them to spend three or four days working on the equipment. If they then decide they want to purchase the equipment, they come down, and it takes about three weeks to train them. Um, and the great thing about it is that the instrumentation is, is, while it's very complex in the interior, you actually can train a lab technician to do the work um, to be able to gather that data. Now, a lab technician can't interpret the data. You, you need a a specialty PhD called an electrophysiologist to be able to, to read that data. Oh, never heard of that electrophysiologist. Huh. Well, you've, then you have a very healthy heart because if you were to go to a cardiologist, um, a cardiologist, if he's treating you, may want to look at what's happening to the electrical currents in your heart, and the cardiologist then would call in an electrophysiologist because the body system is nothing but a series of electronic currents, mm-hmm. in particular mm-hmm. in the heart. And so an electrophysiologist is somebody who's studying the coming and going of those electrical signals across cells and tissue. Oh, interesting. I'm learning a lot from you today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not too boring. It's a little technical sometimes. I'm never bored by it. I'm always fascinated by it. 
and our listenership is also. Let's talk about the different diseases uh, where these ion channels can play a really significant role, you know, in treating and curing that, that, the diseases. Yeah, that that is really now a, a a new frontier, if you will, because before, in the early days of ion channel work and ion channel discovery, they really were just looking for responses. They weren't really looking whether or not there was a therapeutic outcome to being able to manipulate these ion channels. But one of the things that has opened up um, as more and more work has been done here, and I'll give, I'll give you one example in particular. On triple negative breast cancer, there is a particular ion channel. What we've discovered is if you, um, I'm going to use the word suppress, if you suppress that ion channel, that is you don't allow it to be broadcasting, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. actually stops the cancer cell. Interesting. It won't, it won't grow anymore. It won't grow anymore. Um, and so there are different kinds of things like that that people are looking at. Um, most of the work in terms of looking at ion channels and what they can do from a curative informational standpoint is really on the cancer side. Though there's now more and more work coming out in Alzheimer's and there's more and more work coming out in diabetes. So, for instance, with the triple negative breast cancer, uh-huh. the ability to be able to, to stop that particular ion channel how would they stop it? It's, uh, there's no little switch, but what you really do is that you create a little switch. So in this particular instance, we know that there is a, you know that with that ion channel, that if you want to uh, suppress it, if you will, that there mm-hmm. is a, another drug which does not harm the body, that if you introduce that drug into that, physiological context, it does, okay. in fact, suppress that ion channel. So you're is looking... Is it a fairly new pharmaceutical out on the market as a result? No, of... no. In fact, it's been around for 50 years. I really can't say more than that, but I, but I can tell you it's a very, very old, very commonly used. No one thought about it in this particular way, and it was one of those accidental discoveries that's turned out to be very significant. Okay. Wonderful. Hmm. I'm so inquisitive, you know. <laughs> That's okay. That's what makes science science. You have to be one who asks questions <laughs> and wants answers. Well, that that was a good example of um, basically, you know, stopping this specific cancer. What are you guys doing in the immune therapy arena? Well, immune therapy is, a, is its own little weird thing because what you're doing in, in immunotherapy, what you're trying to do is you're either trying to enhance, you're trying to uh, suppress, um, or, you're, or you're trying to induce the immune system to do something. Now, in order for you to be able to understand that that is actually happening, you know, the enhancement, the inducement, the, inspre- the, the suppression, you really want to be able to look at particular kinds of cells and see what's happening because by reading the ion channels, you can tell whether or not that immunotherapy is actually doing things that, that you want to do. We don't mm-hmm. spend a lot of time there because um, more often than not, that's where they lie to patients and um, they don't like 
people taking cells out of the needles. So, right. But that's, <laughs> yeah, we can do it in the lab. We actually can. Um, one of the great things ab- about what's happening in medicine now is this whole thing with stem cells. So stem cells sure. used to, as you know, used to come from the umbilical cords of um, right. uh, newborns. newborns. But now what mm-hmm. we do is we actually, we can take skin cells, basically, mm-hmm. is almost what everybody uses is epithelial cells. And out of those mm-hmm. stem cells, we can actually create cardiomyocytes, heart cells. We can create muscle cells. We can create all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So you create those cells, and then you look at what you're doing from a how you are suppressing or enhancing the immune system, and you can read that in a laboratory environment. Like I said, we don't spend a lot of time there. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the most exciting areas that's going on, but we, mm-hmm. we tend to be, no, we don't tend to be, we are a company that does what we call in vitro work. That is all of our research and our mm-hmm. work is done outside the body. If you're doing in vivo work, then you're looking at things inside mm-hmm. the body. Mm-hmm. That's in test tubes. And it's the same thing with gene therapy. You know, gene therapy is, it's fascinating. And that's a little bit more in our world because what happens is, when you're looking at gene therapy, what you're trying to do is you're trying to introduce something into a cell that's doing mm-hmm. some kind of mutant activity. It's a bad mutant. It's a villain. Um, and so by introducing a particular gene into a cell, what you're trying to do is to get the cell to not act in a mutant-like behavior. And in order to do that, um, you've got you to gotta have a carrier that goes into the cell. And we right. understand that process very well. And that's called a vector. And almost always in gene therapy, well, not almost always, a significant number of times, that happens to be a virus. Because the virus can penetrate and get into the cell very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the vectors used in gene therapy are very harmless uh, viruses. But we can pick up and we can see what's what's going on there. and so there's a lot that's going on in both immunotherapy and gene therapy, but they are different. Um, mm-hmm. One is mm-hmm. using the body system one way or the other. The uh, gene therapy is introducing something into a particular cell to get it to behave in, a, in an entirely different way, to make it behave as opposed to misbehave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I can see how you would definitely work hand-in-hand with research centers relative to all of this. Yes. And particularly the pharmaceutical companies. Yep. Huh. Really interesting. What is your um, thoughts relative to where you're going to go in the next few years with all of this? Well, that's the great thing about this. Um, I've, I've used this example in a in a, a speech before, and I'm going to use it in another one in about a week. Um, mm-hmm. What you have to understand is that what we don't see on the surface, we, we are gathering millions of points of data in biotechnology. I mean, we have a massive amount of information that we're, that we're gathering. And we'll, I'll talk about that in, in, in a little bit. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, there's all of this stuff going on. And, and the way to understand what we have to do with that, where we're going mm-hmm. with that, it's changing so quickly. I mean, think, think about this. A few years ago, nobody was talking about gene therapy. 
Nobody mm-hmm. was talking about immunotherapy. And that will True. disappear because things are changing so quickly. And it's, it's a lot like if you, could, if you could imagine going to your refrigerator or if you're on your grandma's farm, going out and putting your hand under the hand and you pull out an egg. When you look at that egg, that's sort of the way people look at science. It's an egg. So what do you do mm-hmm. with it? What do you do with mm-hmm. the egg? What we tend to do is we want to boil the egg. We want to fry the egg. But the egg was not designed for that. An egg was designed to fly. And we as scientists have a responsibility to look at all of this data, all of this information, and understand where the design to fly is. That's what's propelling us. That's what's taking us forward. That's what's pushing us. And so for me to speculate where we might be might sound Mm -hmm. like science fiction stuff. But I will tell you this. Already we can take human cells, grow millions of them in a very few hours, them into a 3D printer and print a nose or an ear to attach to a burn patient using their own cell. We can already do that. That's unheard of two years ago, three years ago. That's how mm. fast all of this is, is evolving. You know, but the one thing I've noticed, as technology evolves, it doesn't get pushed down to the general populace for probably 10, 15 years out. Yeah, well, that's, that's not the fault of science. Um, the, 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 the difficulty is this. We as scientists, we as developers of technology, we as discoverers of these things, this is all great and exciting stuff. I mean, I know that there's stuff going on right now categorically will help patients, that categorically Mm -hmm. will bring cures at a faster rate. But from a regulatory basis, you're not allowed to introduce that into the general population, and really for good reason. And Mm -hmm. you've got to be able to go through the regulatory process, the testing process, the clinical studies, all of these kinds of things. Do I think that that could possibly be shortened? I'm sure an argument could be made for that. That's mm-hmm. outside my area of expertise. Of course. But that course. really is what slows down the process. The other thing is the amount of money. Mm-hmm. It takes billions, not millions, billions of dollars to develop a single therapeutic compound. And the reason that it takes so much money is that it takes us so long. We have to be so detailed. We've got to dig into this so far. And then... And only then do you go through these clinical trials, and those are horrendously expensive uh-huh. mm-hmm. and time-consuming. Mm-hmm. But I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example. If we develop or we're working on a new cardiac compound that would help cardiac patients, um, it will cost us X amount of dollars to do our research, again, in vitro. Now, if you want to do in vivo research, you have to use a live, living animal. And to mm-hmm. do just one study, the cost will be in almost $10 million to do an initial study using living organisms. Mm. And that's before you get to people. And that's mm. not using non-human primates. We're not talking about on 
chimpanzees or anything. I mean, there's just a lot that, that goes into that. So that's mm-hmm. why it takes a while for it to, to bubble down. Now, I think that the thing that we need to do a better job of as scientists is being able to talk like on these kinds of shows about the things that are going on and get people excited about it because then they can begin to push the legislators and the regulators and the doctors, hey, I know this stuff is going on. Why don't you take a look at this? Let's find out what's mm-hmm. going on there. Let's, you know, the more excitement that you build in the general public, I think the faster you're going to get results. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where we're at here in, in Texas, there is a, a particular treatment center that only treats people who are um, terminal. Mm-hmm. That facility is allowed to use all kinds of different experimental drugs. But yes. the insurance companies, you know, don't pay for that. So you've got to find mm-hmm. a way for people to get here and to be treated. But there's some miraculous, wonderful things that are happening there. And mm-hmm. so that's the reason that you get excited and you know that you're, you're doing the kinds of things that you want to do and, and that you really sit there and you go, man, I wish I'd been doing that a little earlier. I wish we'd pushed a little harder. And that's what keeps you going. That's what gets you excited. That's why you stay up 24 hours at a time looking at something because you're just so driven by what you've seen and what you see happening. We have a Mm -hmm. great advantage because where we are here in San Antonio, within a mile of my office, there are 4,000 research scientists. There are six hospitals. The largest pediatric cancer research facility in the world is here in San Antonio. I mean, in the U.S. is here in San Antonio. Um, MD Anderson's research facility is not in Houston. It's here in San Diego, uh, San Antonio. Mm. The largest military research complex in the world is here in San Antonio. And we end up doing things with them and other people end up doing things with them because it's an interconnected community. So there's a lot that, that, that's happening and there's a lot to be excited about. Gee. Yeah, you're, look, you're located in prime territory. It's, I think it's one of the best biotech centers in the world. I, I have this discussion with people all the time. Why are you in Texas? Well, let me tell you why we're in Texas. Do you know that the, there are more biotech jobs in Texas than any other state in the union save one? Connecticut, by the way, has the most. There are more PhDs graduating in biotechnology in Texas than any other state in the union. Within 50 hmm. miles of my office, there are 3,500 biotechnology companies. It's a great place. Wow. Well, you know, we were talking early about, you know, taking human cells and, you know, duplicating by the millions and growing ears and hearts and lungs, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sci-fi. But on the same token, I just see that happening in the general population for probably another 35 years. <laughs> no, no, it's happening right now. That's the great thing about how the they, big military it, facility being there because these soldiers come over who are wounded and right. damaged. And so these things are happening to help bring them back to normalcy. And once that begins to happen, once you see things happening in a hospital setting, that gets down mm-hmm. to other people extremely quickly. So it's, it's, you know, the, so you know, uh, the slogan so you know, of our company is um, we help build tomorrow today. But th- this is happening now with real people, so you know, real patients. Really? So, so you know uh, uh, that it is, it is factual that the military is rebuilding some of these damaged soldiers 
organs. <laughs> Growing new well, ones. <laughs> you can't. Organs are different character. Though we're trying, okay. we are. We are trying to do things with hearts and livers and, and all of that. And that's actually a lot further along than you, than you might think. But this is mostly uh-huh. appendages, you know, things like ears and noses and stuff like this. And for burn victims, you know, before there used to be this terrible scarring. Now there's all mm-hmm. kinds of things that, that you can do um, that, that allows those burns to be healed in a different way. You can use stem cells and, and to be able to do things like that. You can actually use the skin from particular kinds of fish to help burn victims yes, and all of that. Yes, it's, it's yes, a, I've it's heard about that. It's amazing what's really going on. Yeah, yeah, the fish skin for burn victims. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So How there's exciting. a lot that's happening that gets down to the, the, uh, the patient level. But if we don't do it now, if we don't push now, if we're not doing what we're now, it'll never get down there. But it isn't going to take 35 or 40 years. It's changing so quickly that you're going to see more and more of this stuff happening. right. I, I, I really do. I really do hope so. It's just the cost. When, when you look at the cost mm. of, uh, you know, what things are costing the general population, just merely with their insurance, let alone with the care, um, to be able to, to take those next steps forward, um, pretty difficult unless you, you know, you have a substantial amount of money in hand to do. We see that all the well, time, even with are, cancer yeah, patients yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 I'm not uh, schooled, if you will, in that. But I, I do think that there are some things that can be done from um, a regulatory basis to be able to ease the burden, if you will, and to help speed up the process. In sure, the drug development sure. game, time is money. So mm-hmm. if we start today working with a pharmaceutical company on a new compound, we won't we won't get to the end of that for 10 or 12 mm-hmm. years. And it's mm-hmm. not because we're slow or we don't know what we're doing, but there's an awful lot of regulatory uh, Has it gotten any better? That, Has it gotten any better? Um, I, I know I interviewed somebody probably last year, and we were mm-hmm. talking about this very same subject, and I was under the opinion, you know, under the opinion that um, some of these drugs are being rushed through um, within. There are certain you know, classes that are, that, yes, that are. Okay, yes. so it's the classifications that are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The cancer drugs, not yet. <laughs> no, 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 and the we weren't talking drugs, about those. Yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. certain other drug classifications, they are pushing yeah. through a lot. They are pushing. They there, there is a fast track that the FDA has put together. The great thing about our technology and our company is that we really allow uh, those companies to be able to use in the beginning of the process, in the middle of the process, and at the end of the process. So mm-hmm. the flexibility of that technology really helps these companies because we can help. We can help speed the 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 train up so it's going faster down the the rails that it needs to to go. And most instrumentation and most technology companies are constantly looking for how do we increase outcomes at a faster and better pace and not not, uh, negate the accuracy that we need out of all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. So in the next few years, where are you where are you guys going to go? 
In other words, Where? you've got this this amazing technology right now. You're introducing it into all the universities and the pharmaceutical companies, and you're training everyone. What's next? Um, there's there's a there's a, a lot going on, and and uh, I'm you're sounding speechless. Because, <laughs> I know you're speechless. You've got no. so much on your plate. <laughs> yeah, that here's what's happening now. There's a lot. And this is not only with us. This is with a lot of biotechnology. There's a lot that we do in the, in the, in the labs. Almost mm-hmm. all of us in this field are now pointing ourselves to what can we do? How can we take our technology and put it bedside to the patient? So rather than us taking a month to run something in a lab, we could actually take um, – cells, if you will, from a, a patient bedside and in a matter of hours be able to provide a cardiologist or an oncologist with the information they need to make informed choices that they can discuss with the patient as to what kind of treatment modalities would work best for that patient mm. suffering from that disease in this specific instance. That's where we're really going. Um, That's fabulous. And it's, it's, yeah, that it. Almost everybody's going there. You know, I, I used to sail as a kid, and, and one of the things you would do is you're always trying to pick up where the wind's going. But if you've sailed a long time, you'd always see the, the, the line that comes down from the mast to the mm-hmm. side of the boat is actually called a halyard. And on that halyard, you would tie three pieces of little twine yarn, basically. And they're called tattletales because when you're sailing, you'll see those tattletales move before the sail will move. Sometimes you only see one of them flick. But hmm. what you know if we, if, with enough experience is that the wind is about to change. And so what all of us are trying to do is to watch those little tattletales so that we can hmm. make the move that we need to make to where we are providing immediate, better, well-informed patient outcomes. You have to watch the tattletales. And I'm telling you what the tattletales are telling us now is that we're all going to point to bedside modalities, patient mm-hmm. modalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot more possible now than ever before because so many of the hospitals uh, have really great technology. You know, they've instituted. Oh, um, and, of course, now with the um, patient records going digital, I can see, you know, with in, in the future – it's going to be a lot more uh, effective than it has been because, because, you know, they're not able to talk to each other with all of the paper files that we've had forever. Yes, that, that is true. Um, But there's so much that's happening. There's a fascinating company here in San Antonio, um, a a good friend of mine, uh, that's his company. He builds a robot that looks like R2-D2. Literally, mm-hmm. it looks like R2-D2. And the top comes up, and then what it does is you've heard of MRSA and all these other mm-hmm. infectious things in hospitals. Before, you used to have to clean by hand or spray or do something. Well, what they've done is they've built a robot that the, pop, the top pops up. It kills 99.9% any bacteria in that room. It's unbelievable. Mm. Mm. And so the, the technology, you're right, for hospitals oh is advancing at an incredibly rapid pace. 
Oh, that's that is. I mean, because the hospitals they're they're being taken over by um, so many different uh, bacteria. What's uh, what's the big? Yeah, yeah what, there's one in particular. MRSA. That, oh, the staff. MRSA. The, yeah, MRSA. the staff. The staff's yeah. infections. MRSA. MRSA. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, you go in for one thing, and all of a sudden you're fighting for your life. Um, but that's also probably part, partly, I wonder if they could employ that into the surgical, um, rooms as well. Absolutely they do. They do. He's got, he's got units all over the world now. Mm. Interesting. And we share information. Mm. We talk to each other. That's one of the great Mm. things about this industry is that we do talk to each other. You know, the, the you were talking about the uh, electronic data and all of that. Mm-hmm. I get asked mm-hmm. all the time, you know, how much, what kind of role does artificial intelligence uh, play in, in, in all of this? Uh, it plays an enormous role, but not in the way that people think, because you don't have computers thinking about things. But, we, but we, where we're going is that we've got these million points of data, billions of points of mm-hmm, data mm-hmm. that we're all gathering that if we can get that into a pool and then what you begin to do is massage that data because what's going to happen is that it's like when we talked about the triple negative breast cancer. That was an mm-hmm. accidental discovery. I'm willing to bet that in the data that's sitting out there, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of accidental discoveries that are sitting there but were missed because we're handling all the stuff on a on basically a, a, a manual basis. One of the mm-hmm. things that we know that we have to do with our robotic instruments is begin to teach them a whole host of things so that the machine, if you will, makes better, quicker, informed decisions on things that it needs to do, not on which mm-hmm. data to collect and not to collect, but there's a, there's a lot of environmental factors that go into collecting that data where the machine can make decisions in, in, a, in a different kind of way. So I think AI is, is, is huge, um, and I think it's only going to become bigger. The difficulty in our industry is secrets. That is, what mm-hmm. we're doing is proprietary to us. If someone yes. sends us a compound, we don't know what the compound is if we're going to test it. It's going to be R2955F. Mm-hmm. And when we're through testing it and we send it back, we don't know what it's being used for or why. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to share that data with somebody else because somebody else is trying to develop a drug that competes with that drug. And, mm-hmm. and that's one mm-hmm. of the difficulties in this, in this industry. But I think it's one of those difficulties that's going to get broken down over time because we all begin to understand there's a whole lot of baseline data that we all could use and share that doesn't impact where we're going on a proprietary basis. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's where you're going to begin to see a huge shift there's a company that I'm aware of in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. They have gathered information on thousands of tumors, and they're now beginning to share that, that information with people. There are repositories now on heart issues, yes, that's tumor true. issues, et cetera, et cetera. That's true. Where you can go that's in true. and you can gather all this data. Yes, so it's, yes. The it's really a heck have, of a thing. Yep. It is. Yep. The scientists have access to it. Yeah. yeah. It's exciting stuff. I mean, you get you get it really is. you get really pumped up about it all. Oh, is an exciting time to be alive. 
it is a great time to be alive because, it, I, again, look at this. Gene therapy was nothing five years ago. Now it's something. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we're going to be five years from now? Because the ability for us to gather information, the ability for us to understand diseases, the ability for us to be able to understand cells, the ability for us to be able to understand ion channels is growing at an exponential rate. It is one of the greatest times to be alive because things are going to start happening in front of us that will literally take our breath away. Literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, uh, the technology that we have, um, you know, particularly with the computer systems, they can digest so much data so much quicker than we ever could imagine and then spit it back out just how we request it. Or sometimes in ways that we didn't understand we request. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get more than what you asked for. <laughs> it's, it's one of the great things about biotechnology is, is um, uh, I'm sorry, I had to walk over and do something, um, is the what I call the unintended consequences in a positive yeah. <laughs> way. There are lots of unintended consequences that are negative. But in right. our world, we get so many of them that are just positive. Uh-huh. So it's fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how many people do you have on your team? You know, we have, what makes them uh, right now? We, yeah, we have so 21. Uh, mm-hmm. We're looking, and we're in uh, Cologne, Germany, Birmingham, Alabama, San Antonio, Texas, and we have a relationship with a really good group of people in Tokyo. Wow. Fascinating. Well, and one of the great okay. things about our company uh-huh. is that we don't need a lot of people. We just need uh-huh. a lot of smart people. You know, I get yeah. I get to do these interviews as if I'm the smart guy. I am not the smart guy. I'm not. I get to drive the bus, but all those people that are riding the bus are smarter, more inquisitive, more mm-hmm. driven than I will ever be. And they're the ones that are able to drive this company to do extraordinary things in these extraordinary times. It's an incredible group of people. Incredible. Mm. We're doing things now in Germany, in our labs in Germany, that no one has ever done in the history of mankind when it comes to cardiac work. No one. This little tiny team. Hmm. Germany is is known for a lot of fabulous uh, treatment protocols and um, Mm -hmm. centers. I wonder why, why Germany? Why do they have the peep the peeps? <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of investment by the government in biotechnology. In fact, the, the foundation for this company were it originally was in Germany. Were grants from the German government. The government spends an awful lot of time and money, both growing the people and investing in companies, and asking nothing in return. Just do the work, make the discovery. That's a very oh, okay. enlightened uh, position. And I would, oh. I would encourage our government to do the same thing. I think it can be mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. I do too. Well, Dr. Jim Garvin, it's been a wonderful, wonderful interview. I wish you, you so and your staff just the absolute best. And perhaps we could talk again in a year or two and see where you're at again. That would be uh, fantastic. And I'm happy to introduce you to the guy with the robot. That does, that does ah, 
Oh, that'd be a wonderful. In- that would be a wonderful you, interview. You, it really would. It would be. You would. You would like him. He's a great guy, and uh, he's yeah, smarter than I him, am too. But he's a good guy. Send him. Send him our way. Just you know, send the info to us. You've got our email. Well, thank you so much for asking me to spend some time with you. I hope I didn't bore you, and I hope it was informative. No, you couldn't possibly be boring. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks. much. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Well, that wraps up our interview for today. I hope you all have learned as much as uh, I have. At least we definitely know now what what um, ion channels are. <laughs> Join us again next week. We'll have another great show for you. Until then, please be well. Bye bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? 